everybody and welcome to Pottywood, the show which is usually about three times as long. However, we'll get to the reason why it isn't in a moment, but it is the show where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... That would be me, Andrew Roger Carson. Welcome to the Pottywood Minisodes. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, basically, it's Pottywood Diet, Pottywood Light... It's uh, it's all of the wonderful stuff that you've come to expect from Pottywood, but just kind of condensed uh, and without the wonderful icing that is our guest on top of the cake. So uh, we're going to be going over all the usual features that you'd be looking at, uh, the review from What's in the Box, the anniversaries, and of course, Nominate 5 and What's in the Box. Oh no, we're not doing Nominate 5, are we? I don't know, are we? Are I don't we know, are we? Let's see how we get on. Yeah. Let's... We may just feel like we want to interject it a little bit. Yes, and the reason why um, we're doing mini-sodes at the moment is it's getting a bit spacious between guests, uh, mainly, and I will take full blame for it, is I'm just a very busy man, and it's getting hard to really juggle the time frames of everyone and my own time at the moment. So uh, we decided, you know what, we're missing out on weeks here. Why don't we just do some... Minisodes. So that way, Steve can still get his good slash bad movie fix. Yeah, and you can still gloat over the fact that I have to watch utter garbage like Ghostbusters 2016. Oh, that was like last time. We're, we're over that now. It's over with. It's done. I'm never getting well. over that. <laughs> There's worse movies to come. Mm. This is how it is. We're going to do some minisodes because people are saying, when's the next episode? And I'm like, well, to be honest, we could record one, but... Let's just do some lights and uh, yes. have some fun with it. So next week, uh, we do have a new f- monthly fixture on our next episode because Jonas Barnes will be joining us from New York, a fantastic stand-up comedian uh, who does his own unique movie reviews of the stuff that comes out. So I have invited him along to do one. Not do one as in the British sense, but just come along and do a podcast with us. Well, we'll see. We'll see how good he is. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. About fifteen no, minutes in, go on, do one. No, he is hilarious. I've been seeing uh, the stuff that he does. He also hosts a podcast as well, which we're going to do some cross promotion with. Shock horror! It is shock horror because it is a horror podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes, we will get into that towards the end of the show when we get around. Oh, speaking of getting around, Steve, I'm not buying more drinks. What are you talking about? No, what's in the box from the last episode? was Before Sunset, a movie that gets around everywhere within its hour and a half-ish running time. It's actually an hour and 20 minutes. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I reviewed Before Sunrise, which was the first of Linklater's... Well, we we said that it was a trilogy, but it wasn't because they kind of popped up in another movie or something, didn't they? Yes, the Before Trilogy, Yeah, but they also had a segment in Waking Life as well. Yeah, well, we're going to call it a trilogy just for the sake of... Yeah. And yeah, the first one uh, centred around our two characters as they met on a train and they went around the the streets of Vienna uh, waiting for Jesse's, who was played by Ethan Hawke, waiting for his plane to take off. Now, this one takes place 10 years later, the two of them are 10 years older they're 10 years wiser and jesse has written a book about his uh his very very brief one night love affair with this strange parisian girl that he met on the train and of course the two of them then meet up again and 
it follows them around pretty much in real time uh, as he's waiting in Paris for his uh, plane back to the US. It's got the same cast, uh, along with Ethan Hawke. You've got Julie Delpy back again. It follows the same style as the first one. They walk from one location to another, talking. Then they arrive at a location, and then they talk at that location. And then they go, hey, I know, let's go to another location. And then they get up, and they walk to that location. They arrive at that location, and so on, and so on, and so forth. Now, the first one I found amazingly pretentious, and I I think I said in the the review that it was kind of caught up in that early 90s obsession, which was more or less kicked off by Tarantino, that everything had to be really dialogue heavy. Everything had to be wonderful and insightful. And uh, that, you know, even the, the weirdest of characters can have these deep insights into the inner workings of the human psyche. Now, hang on, that's a, that, I'm just going to interject that. That's a bit unfair because Woody Allen was doing it way before Tarantino was doing it. The, the indie scene did... Yeah. Bolster it, it was bit, yeah. it was like the indie explosion and loads of films were doing this around there and that was one of them and in this it's still to the same level they are still talking about the various things which well you would talk about with your friends or your family life love the role of religion and politics and what it means to connect with someone else and in this one the level of pretentiousness has been dialed down uh, that might also be for the fact that it's only, like I said, an hour and 20 minutes, and that's including the uh, the credits. So the whole thing just feels like it's, it's an unnecessary sequel. At, at the same time, the characters work better because now that you're seeing them as older and more world-weary, and I think that kind of resonates with me more, as obviously you and I, we're in our early 40s now, so we're kind of getting past all of the early 20s angst that was kind of following you around at the time, and now we're older, we've got kids and families and all the rest of it. So we could, I, I could appreciate what was being said in that more, but it still didn't take away from the fact that nothing is happening in these movies. These are just movies where two people walk around a place and they talk to each other. If you're after anything else happening, it doesn't. I think the closest that something happens in this is that uh, Julie Delpy's character, Celine, she plays guitar. And that's kind of it. And you realize that uh, that she has been pining after... Jesse, all the same years that he's been pining after her, and he's written a book to deal with their night together, and she's written a song to deal with their night together, and it's one of the few nice moments in it. But and the the song itself is a very nice song, and that's the only part of it which isn't just this conversation between two people. And that ending, you get the feeling that uh, spoiler alert that uh, Richard Linklater was watching The Sopranos when he decided to come up with that ending. Because it is just this pretty much sudden fade to black. And you think, oh, is that it? Is that where they're leaving this? And of course, I know now that we've got the next one in the series before midnight. And so obviously the two are going to be there together again. And we get to find out what happened just as we get to find out what happened at the end of before sunrise. But it just felt like one hell of a crap ending. Like they just had no idea how they were going to finish the film. I love that ending. I thought you might have done. I did. That, that final scene, that entire final scene and the way it ends off is perfect. Absolutely perfect. And I remember when the movie came out, 
I was dying to see this movie because I was such a fan of the first one. The great thing that I do love about this movie, it feels very personal to me because I actually did have um, a kind of girl that got away relationship, kind of similar to it, I guess. And I met up with her a few years later and realized that there was still something there and we both did. Mm. So, and it was around the time of this film came out. So I can get it, you know, Jesse and Celine in their thirties in the first movie it was in their twenties. And then in the third one, it's them in their forties. And I guarantee you there is going to be another one when they're in their fifties and uh, I'll welcome it. It's the thing with Richard Linklater. You love some of his movies or you hate them, but he, brilliantly does character studies with so little. I mean, he does these arty movies like Waking Life or A Scanner Darkly. You know, he also has movies like Boyhood, which though transverses over the years. I think he's just a master at what he does. He's very underappreciated in that regard. And yeah, I mean, the takes are long and full mastery to Delphi yeah, and Ethan Hawke. I've, I've got to give them a lot of props for not only being able to uh, keep the scene going as long as they did. The the amount of technical expertise needed to pull off those scenes. Camera movement is superb. The lighting, the way that they shot everything more or less within the golden hour. That must have been a nightmare yeah. to yeah. set up. They shot it in 15 days. Mm. Just 15 days they managed to capture all of those takes. The longest take is 11 minutes long, which is a hell of an amount. That is the longest take that is in the actual movie. That is mastery on every level. Oh yeah, I'm to not. Get that. I am not taking anything away from the uh, the technical aspect of it, nor the uh, performance focus needed to be able to do it. What I'm saying is that there's not much in this for oh, no, me. You're not, you're not getting the sex scenes. You're not getting car chases. I'm, I'm, you're not I'm getting not even... the heightened tension or anything like that. It is simply a story of two people rediscovering each other. I'm I'm not after sex scenes or car chases. I just want something to happen. Yeah, in this one throughout the whole thing there's virtually no other characters. In the first one you had the the little conversation with the guy on the bridge, then there was a conversation uh with the fortune teller outside the cafe, the, yeah, the record was, store. Yeah. yeah, you had the record store. So you had all these other characters that were coming in and kind of intersecting with this love story. In this it's just the two of them throughout the whole thing. It's two people talking for an hour for an hour and 20 minutes. Well, to be honest, I mean that could have fell in a lot with uh, Delpy and Ethan Hawke, because this was the first time uh, with the sequel, them and Linklater really uh, wrote the script all together. So obviously I think the focus was mainly on these two characters. And I think maybe Delpy and Ethan Hawke focused more on that, because mm. I guess that was the more important thing. I mean, this was, the strange thing is, even though this is, uh, you know, an original script, it actually got best, it got nominated for best at adapted screenplay which makes sense well actually it kind of does what is basically the academy they deem a sequel as an adaptation right right and that's why uh it would actually fall into that bracket uh i think this was very much julie delpy's movie you know it's a couple movie but she comes out of it the strongest Mm. i mean she is phenomenal in this film i thought this this really showcased 
her talents on another level. And I'd watch a lot of French cinema and world cinema and things like that. So I knew of her way back before people got a glimpse of her in uh, Killing Zoe or An American Werewolf in Paris, if you want to be that cruel. Uh, you can go all the way back to The Three Musketeers, actually, the one with Charlie Sheen in. She oh. has a very small role in that. Famously, there's a great story behind this. Uh, Julie Delpy's agent at the time told, advised her, do not do this movie. And I believe their exact words were, don't do this movie, go to the gym instead. Oué la bibliothèque. <laughs> yeah. And funnily enough, uh, that same agent fired her on the same day that he told her. Well, and more for her agent, because yeah. she has gone on to you know, be a huge name and a great director as well. Oh, does she direct now? Yes. Yes, she does. And um, she directed, um, I want to say she directed Two Days in Paris and then Two Days in New York. I'm not sure if she did Two Days in Paris, but I know that she directed um, one of them. Hmm. But yes, uh, she's uh, she's a phenomenal director, a phenomenal storyteller, you know, coming from, you know, the, the French cinema. And you could probably count the amount of, female French directors that you know of on one hand. but uh, I Julie only need Delphi one finger. Point. It's Julie Delpy. I don't know any others. <laughs> exactly. But you're an everyman, so you wouldn't know like the, the vast range of great female directors from around the world. You know, it's even worse than America actually does have its talent in female directors at the moment. And most of them are all from around the world. Um, but yes, uh, I'm going to... Say, I love Before Sunset, and I love Before Midnight as well, and uh, that'll be coming up one day, probably in the future. I'm not going to make you watch all three in a row with Ghostbusters in between. I'm not that cruel. Well, I've watched 2016 now, so I don't have to watch it again. By the rules that have been set down by what's in the box, it's done. I don't even have to contemplate it again. Exactly. You know, Maybe you could do uh, an American version where uh, they're all walking around somewhere like New York. That'd be interesting. Because you'd just have people shouting at each other in the background to get the f*** out of the way. Hey, what are you doing walking through Central Park here? Look at you yes. twos. You're trying to have a conversation. I'm trying to sell these knockoff watches. What do you want to do? Yes, I'll let you know because uh, in just a little over a week and a half, I'm coming to America myself. So I'm not jealous. No, you're not. But saying that, some anniversaries to go. Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Ah, yes, the anniversary section. And it's funny enough that I mentioned coming to America because that is our first anniversary this week. Ah, bon, c'est anniversaire. Yes. Coming to America, released in 1988, when, uh, I I think it's fair to say, Eddie Murphy was king of the world at that point. Pretty much, yeah. You've got his work on uh, Beverly Hills Cop basically catapulting him into the stratosphere and then sending him to even greater heights with Beverly Hills Cop 2. He could basically go out and name his price on pretty much anything that he wanted to do and... uh, Thank God he wanted to do this. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. It's a really excellent comedy. It's definitely the peak of Eddie yeah. Murphy in the 80s. I don't think it got any bigger than this. But uh, I'll tell you what, who wasn't on fire at the time was its director, John Landis, 
whose career was kind of deemed as over. I and mean, that's obviously stemming from the uh, Twilight Zone. The Twilight yeah. Zone trial uh, that we all know and have heard about. Mm-hmm. But you know, John Landis, he directed The Blues Brothers. You can go all the way back and say something like Schlock, which was, <laughs> for me, I actually thought it's a brilliant little movie. No, it's pronounced Shrek. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and, and uh, I believe Eddie Murphy actually vouched for him because they'd worked on Trading Places. Yeah. And it had such an amazing time on that movie. And it was a breakout movie for Eddie Murphy. It was a huge hit. And obviously, John Landis then went on to do Beverly Hills Cop 3. And uh, uh, we always seem to have a pattern of coming back to Beverly Hills Cop 3. But I'm going to give John Landis a bit of a break here because it's between Beverly Hills Cop 3 and Blues Brothers 2000, for which is the most disappointing follow-up. Yeah, I probably would actually put it out there that it is... It's Beverly Hills Cop 3, simply because the Blues Brothers 2000 did have, at bare minimum, a fantastic score. It uh, Yeah, I still have that CD soundtrack you know, to this day. You it's cannot amazing. argue with just the sheer amount of talent, musical talent that's in oh, that movie. Yeah. Oh, just in the end bit for the New yeah. Orleans track. Yeah, Incredible. I mean, the film itself is hot garbage. But <laughs> just that, that talent, oh. Anyway, back to uh, coming to America. Yes, yes, yes. I will say that Blues Brothers 2000 introduced me to Blues Traveller as well, and mm. I've loved Blues Traveller ever since. They're great. Um, okay, yes, I'm going to point this out. Coming to America, everyone loves Coming to America. I've never met a person who hates it. No. It's it's just one of those movies that is incredibly timeless. I can't say the same for the sequel that came out last year, where it was, it was such a disappointment. That wasn't our oh, Coming to America at all. Uh, I don't care if it did have... Randy Watson and Sexual Chocolate, you know, which is what everyone wanted to see. That was the only character everyone really wanted to see, and they saved it right till the end. They knew what they were doing. Uh, Coming to America, I think, is evidence that Eddie Murphy's movies exist in a multiverse of their own. Yeah, because you've got the wonderful cameo of uh, Donna Mechi and Ralph Bellamy from Trading Places popping up as uh, Randolph and Mortimer Duke, both bums in New York, living on the streets. Yes, and uh, Paul Gleason was supposed to come back and cameo as his character from Trading Places, but he was busy being Deputy Dwayne T. Robinson in Die Hard when they were shooting this. <laughs> yeah. So uh would have been interesting if he would have uh, still been glued to that monkey suit <laughs> with the other monkey on his back. Also, this was the movie that kind of introduced Eddie Murphy to all the prosthetics work and playing multiple characters in his movies including his scene stealing turn as the jewish guy soul yes where i've which... stolen my old jewish guy voice from yes yes that's his day that's everyone please try the soup i got it from him it's my impression of eddie murphy doing an impression of an old jewish guy <laughs> and you nail it you nail it uh, I'm thinking him doing that must have been payback for all those jewish comedians who used to do blackface back yeah, in probably. the day um, you also have James L. Jones in there mm-hmm. and uh, Darth Vader himself uh, infamously throughout this entire movie Eddie Murphy and John Landis had a very famous falling out mm. uh, which they eventually did solve in time for Beverly Hills Cop 3 and then I'm sure it Get happened all over again yeah. <laughs> but this is the movie with so many amazing little cameos in there you've got Samuel L. Jackson doing one of his first ever roles. Yeah. You've got 
Uh, blinking, you'll miss him. Cuba Gooding Jr. getting his hair cut at the Mighty Shop. Yeah. And uh, uh, Von Decatur's Hall. Yes. Uh, he's in there. Uh, and these have all gone on to become like major, major talents over the years. And uh, it really is a hilarious film. Well, unless your name is Art Buckwald. <laughs> who sued the shit out of Paramount because uh, and won, I will say, because it touched on a piece of work that he had actually presented to Paramount years before. A touch of uh, the plagiarism, Paramount? Hmm. Yes, plagiarism. Yes. Uh, the other funny thing, you've got John Amos playing uh, Mr. McDowell. Yes. McDowell's is hilarious. Uh, which even more funny because John Amos actually worked at the first ever McDonald's in Canada. Oh, did he? And you can all at hand, he was actually in one of the first McDonald's commercials, which you can find on YouTube, uh, the famous Mop and Bucket commercial. It's John Amos as a McDonald's employee. So that's just a hilarious little tag along there. Uh, But yes, uh, Lendis' career was in ruins at the time. Eddie Murphy vouched for him because they had such a great chemistry on trading places. And, you know, the standouts of this film, obviously, Randy Watson and Sexual Chocolate mm-hmm. gets quoted by everyone. Everyone loves Randy Watson and Sexual Chocolate. Not in the movie, but they love the yeah. character in real life. No. And I've got to say, the one thing that really is on fire in this movie is Arsenio Hall. Yeah. Right. It, what a talent Arsenio Hall is in this movie. And the funny thing is, I didn't realize until my research today... Arsenio Hall was the voice of Winston Zedmore in a real Ghostbusters cartoon. Yes, yes, he was. And that role was originally written for Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, it's yeah. the Murphyverse. He he was nailing it out as well. I mean, you mentioned uh, sexual chocolate, but the the minister—I can't remember his name—just in front. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes you feel hot and bothered. It's like, oh my god, that is so sleazy. When I look at these contestants, I feel good. <laughs> Reverend Brown. Reverend Brown. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the guys that are arguing about whether or not his name is Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay. Uh, the mighty sharp guy, Clarence yeah. and oh. uh. it, it, There's wonderful, wonderful little moments that exist away from the main plot like that. So it's like it's one of those movies which does it kind of transcends the the uh, the generational leap because it is such at its core it is a bloody funny film. Yeah, and to be honest, here's another little fact out of it: the soul glow song I have as a ringtone for my friend Jim Meakin, mainly because he's bald. But <laughs> every time he rings me, that song goes off, and he's like, "You take forever to answer your phone." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm waiting for it to peak." <laughs> That's so. Yeah. I actually saw this um, the first time I saw it was actually on VHS so it was a rental I think I went to stay up at my dad's for a weekend and we're sitting there watching it and as soon as the royal penis is clean scene with all the girls with their tits out he looks and says yeah I don't think this is one you should be watching Andrew <laughs> I, so, I completely forgot about that scene <laughs> yes, I, I always remember that to this day it's like that's something I'll always associate with my dad thinking that I've never seen a pair of tits at like 10 years old okay. <laughs> or nine, whatever I was. So, yes, uh, Coming to America celebrates its anniversary this week. I, I say stay, stay clear of the sequel. It is a big disappointment. It has one or two great moments in it that are all based around 
the original characters. Yeah, I don't right. care about any of the other people in this movie, in the no. sequel. And it has still one of the greatest visions of New York that is stuck in my head, which I am dying to see in the next couple of weeks, if it's true. That Just the moment where he's like, hello, my neighbours! <laughs> you, buddy! <laughs> well, having actually visited Queens, I can definitely say it's true. Yeah, I can imagine yeah. that. Yeah, that, That'll suit me down to the ground. Yeah. Anyway, what have we got next? Okay, next, uh, let's go back to 1984. I did kind of mention this on the last episode, but I thought, you know what, it's, it's worth having a bit of a look at Bachelor Party. Oh, this has been ages, and I mean ages since I've seen this, so I can't remember a damn thing about it, apart from the fact that there's a donkey in it, or I might be getting that confused <laughs> with Clerks 2. The, the cocaine-snorting donkey, yeah. yes. It is in Bachelor Party, and Kevin Smith obviously ripped it off, but went just a little bit further. Yeah. Uh, bachelor party was that was the forbidden fruit in the day, like porkies and stuff like that. You know, if if you saw it, you know your parents have not permitted you to see it. You've just kind of snuck downstairs and realised they've got it on rental and just going to watch it. Oh, that's that's how I saw it anyway. And I watched it again this week, as I do with all of the anniversary movies, just to give me a refresher. And it's still hilarious, but there is no way in hell this movie would be made today. <laughs> You can't get away with that these days. No. I mean, you've got a woman tugging on a penis in a hot hot dog bun, and that's the lightest joke. Mm. So we we have like a transsexual rape. <laughs> yeah. These are things that I never fully appreciated in this film, and nowadays it's like, no wonder Tom Hanks never talks about this movie anymore. Yeah. But you have their little friend who's obviously bedded this, you know, large build woman. And this large build woman walks into the bathroom and takes a pee standing up. The next minute, he's like ripping his clothes off and getting in the shower, kind of like Jim Carrey in uh, Ace Ventura. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely uh, this is definitely a time when that that was your punchline. That was your go to thing. You know, you want to you want to make fun of someone for being uh, a bit different. Yeah. Uh, let them have accidental sex with a man. Oh yeah, <laughs> but there's there's plenty of other things as mm. well, um, including the the stereotypical uh, '80s humor of loads of Japanese businessmen being the horniest people on the planet, and maybe they are. I don't know. I've <laughs> I, never I, met anyone from Japan, let alone Japanese businessmen. So they could be the horniest people on the planet. Well, well, we'll see when I go to Japan. Not that I'm going to be looking for it, but you never know. Anyway, um, Bachelor Party, directed by Neil Israel. It's a name that we've kind of mentioned before. Uh, he's known as a writer and director. His writing credits, I'm seeing a pattern here. The first Police Academy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Blue Oyster Bar, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But also did... Uh, there's a brilliant Val Kilmer comedy called Real Genius that he was the writer of as well, uh, which is actually pretty funny. It's a pretty good film. Unfortunately, he was also the writer of Look Who's Talking 2, because there's a movie that needed a sequel straight away yeah. with Roseanne Barr in it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, interesting fact about this movie. Kelly McGillis, Top Gun Kelly McGillis to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, was actually cast in the Tony Catan role. Um, but apparently she was fired because she just wasn't attractive enough, apparently. Really? 
Kelly McGinnis uh, wasn't attractive enough. Uh, apparently so. Well, he kind of put it down that there was no chemistry and also the fact that before Tom Hanks, Paul Reiser was actually cast. This is not my bachelor party. No, what is this? What are you talking about? Yeah. So they were the original two in Bachelor Party. So they were both kind of recast with Tom Hanks, who I guess he was coming out of Buzz and Buddies, the TV series at the time, and those appearances as the cousin or uncle in Family Ties to Michael J. Fox. God, that's how old I am. So he was starting to get into the movies with, I mean, this was before Splash. So this was around the man with one red shoe period, I guess, when he was doing movies like Volunteers that no one saw or no one can remember. And to be honest, you know, it's it, it has all of the early Tom Hanks humour quirks, like this, the regular thing where he jokes about exchanging underwear with women, that he's done at least three movies in a row. Yeah, because he did it in Dragnet. Now, you come in by Yes. Now? I have to. You're wearing my underwear. Yes, exactly. That, that That's a really funny thing, apparently. That They're not even that comfortable. But also, he is joined by his motley crew of people that you don't really know, apart from Adrian Zmed, who you've only ever seen in Grease 2 and TJ Hooker. Come on. that That's the only things you know Adrian Zmed from. I've not seen Grease 2, and I can't tell you when I last saw TJ Hooker. Okay. And... And the American Ninja, Michael Dudikoff, is one of his friends as well. Uh, which is very bizarre to see him doing a comedy because like, only a year later, he's the American Ninja and has continued to be the American Ninja forever since, I guess. Um, other people who were also down for the Tom Hanks role who auditioned, apparently, was Jim Carrey, mm-hmm. Howie Mandel, Okay. And Tim Robbins. Now, Tim Robbins is the only one I could actually see maybe being along those lines, but his comedy was always still a bit weird. Yeah, I think because he is more of a serious actor, though, isn't he, really? at the heart And he's really tall. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hanks isn't short, though. No, apparently not. You get short with reporters, but... Yeah. After that video where the the guys were put trying to get photos and they pushed his wife, you know, if that was your wife, you'd turn around and do the exact same thing. Don't say that you wouldn't. I know. I oh would. God, I'd headbum. Yeah, but that's that's just me. I'm an English savage. Um, other little notice here about Bachelor Party. <laughs> Good old Pat Proft plays the screaming man. Like I say, I have seen it. I can't remember it. So who is the screaming man? <laughs> There's a joke that's so terrible that it's great. So basically, the guy who was supposed to be played by Ted McGinley from Revenge of the Nerds, he was supposed to be the swami ex-boyfriend, Kent, and he ended up getting, you know, the guy with the massive jaw who usually wears braces. I can't remember what his name is, but he gets stripped and he's hanging out of his window and this guy actually pulls his curtains aside and he says, oh, there's a lovely moon out tonight. Pulls back. Sure enough, there's his ass against the window. And the woman screams and then he screams. So uh, that was uh, an early thing of Pat Proft. He was the writer of it, obviously. So it's a butt joke. It's a butt joke. Uh, bachelor Party, I'm actually going to say, you know what? If you view it in the time window of when it was, it's still shocking, but it's also still funny in places. There's just some things that you have to look at it and go, oh, yeah, it's funny, but that wouldn't fly today. I'm amazed the film hasn't been cancelled yet. 
by certain groups who oh, probably will after they've time. heard. Yeah, after they've heard this podcast, after they've discovered it, and after they've cleared out every single thing in their life to do over them listen to us, <laughs> they'll probably do it. Okay, so we've had two comedies. One I am very, very familiar with. One I am not so familiar with, but I have seen. So I've seen two of them. What have we got next? You must have seen this one. I'm, I'm going to go online and say you must have seen this movie. But back in 1981, The Cannonball Run was released. You know what I have? But I think the only time that I've actually seen it is when it has like been on TV during my youth. And it was always one of those things which was on late night ITV. And I was never allowed to stay up and watch any more than like about the first five minutes of it. So oh, you've missed out. I have missed out. Go on, fill us in. <laughs> you have missed out. This was when Bert was king. Hey, Bert Reynolds and a car is box office gold. The Cannonball Run, it's kind of sad looking back at it now, but I'll explain why. Right, for one, it was directed by the late Hal Needham. Now, Hal Needham... You know, he directed three Smoking the Bandits movies, mm -hmm. two Cannonball Run movies, uh, Stroker Ace. Uh, <laughs> a really what you bad get up movie. to in your own time, that's entirely up to you. Exactly. And Mega Force, which you've got to see to frickin' believe. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, but Hal Needham was, uh, it was a stuntman. So all of his yeah. movies were very practical stunts, and they're great. But when you look at it in this time loop now, it is the movie where all of the top-line players of this movie are dead, except for Jackie Chan and Adrian Barbo. It was Jackie Chan in this? Yes. This was his... Damn. This was the first... Uh, he had a deal um, to come and do these two movies. It was kind of through... I think it was through Golden Harvest at the time, where he would come to America and do... I think it was three movies. There was Battle Creek Brawl... There was a movie called The Protector, which is a guilty classic, and then The Cannonball Run. It was to really get his name over to America, and it kind of worked a little bit, but nowhere near as big as it did in the 90s when Rumble in the Bronx was released. Right. So Rumble in the Bronx, obviously, that just catapulted Jackie Chan to major box office gold. Then you had Rush Hour, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Farrah Fawcett, um, Roger Moore, all of these people who are in this movie, and it was basically an ensemble. You know, it's like those fun movies where they just cram loads of stars in. They'll come and work for two or three days and just make a movie. And most of these actors did show up for two or three days, you know, just to come and do their scenes, and then that was it. You know, it, it is like a veritable cartoon movie. You know, it's it's all car racing and stunts. It's like a Wild West show with comedy. And it's a it's a very sad fact that all of these talents, the majority of them, are all gone now. Yeah, I think Roger Moore being the last one of the main cast. Uh, obviously, had Richard Keel in there. No, Richard Keel was in the sequel. Sorry, but um, that would have been brilliant if Richard Keel was in it as well. Well, yeah. he was in Cannonball Run too, but Roger Moore didn't return for that one. I know, but they could have had like the uh, that little lethal weapon moment in Maverick. They could have had one of those where the two kind of like look at each other and just go, no, nah, no, nah, shake the heads and walk off. That would have been well, brilliant. There's potential losses because Roger Moore practically is playing James Bond, but his name is Sinjin Smythe or something like that. Um, yes. it's, it's something along those lines. 
But he's still got the James Bond cars with all of the tricks. He's still got the beautiful Bond girl. And it's great because they're doing this race. But every time it goes back to Roger Moore, he's got a different girl in the car with him in this <laughs> race. <laughs> and I've got to admit, I love Roger Moore in this movie because he is so playing off. And he was still James Bond at the time. You know, he, he was still in the middle of his... I think he'd just done Moonraker. So he still had For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy and all that to do. Mm. But um, it's it, it, it's a great parody of himself, which is just brilliant. And this was the movie that inspired Jackie Chan to add bloopers at the end of his movies. Which I'm actually glad that he did. Although, to be perfectly honest, a lot of the stuff that is bloopers in a Jackie Chan movie is just him getting injured in really horrible ways. <laughs> yes. The, the rumble in the Bronx one where he jumps onto that hovercraft and you just see his foot bend. It's like, yeah. breaks his ankle. But yes, uh, he was totally enamoured uh, with the outtakes that they were doing at the end, thought it was a fantastic gimmick. He took it back with him, and it's been a staple of Jackie Chan movies ever since. Yeah. You know, especially his more comedy martial arts, not his serious ones. Um, Burt Reynolds famously says, you know, he's, he's not got fun... Well, he didn't have fun memories of it. He actually said, you know, it was one of the worst things that he basically sold out to do. He said he did it for his friend, Hal Needham. But he ended up doing loads more movies with Hal Needham afterwards, so it wasn't selling out. Did that Hal Needham? Ah, ah, yeah. Thank you. I guess so. I guess so. But um, Cannibal Run is it's one of those movies that is brilliant. And it wasn't actually supposed to be Burt Reynolds. Originally, it was supposed to be Steve McQueen. But Steve McQueen died of cancer uh, leading up to it. So obviously, Burt stepped in uh, as a favour. And he says he, he feels like he really sold out. But to be honest, you watch it. And it looks like he's having the time of his life. He even gets his stunt double a role in the movie. There's a a cop that pulls over the two girls who get their tits out <laughs> every time a police officer pulls them over. And it's like, that guy looks spinning image of Burt Reynolds. And that's actually Burt Reynolds' stunt double standing. This did lead to a real-life spin-off. Well, probably many real-life spin-offs, but the one which I'm thinking of uh, was the, the Gumball Rally. Well, funnily enough, that yes, which, uh, uh, which... there was a movie, The Gumball Rally, was actually released before mm -hmm. the Cannonball Run, but Gumball 3000, and they yeah. still do these races. The last official Cannonball race, um, which was a real thing, because Hal Needham actually participated in it, in the very ambulance that is in this movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the last one was in 1979, so it was like the year before this movie went into production. Right. Some nice little things about this. Oh, well, I guess not for Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan was a bit pissed off with the movie because he's Chinese and they had him playing Japanese because in Hollywood it's that easy. <laughs> I guess. It, it pretty is much it... is. You there, Asian-looking fellow. Where are you from? Doesn't matter. You're playing this place. Yes. Get in there and, and play the pervy Japanese guy who's watching porn in the back of the car while they're racing. <laughs> and if they're not playing porn, they're playing Pac-Man video games in their car. Yeah, so, or, wow, or they're in little suits with those round glasses on playing stereotypical businessmen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you also have... Oh, anytime Mel Tillis is in your movie, it's brilliant. The guy with the, the worst speech impediment in cinema history. But, you know, he, he's there like, I tell you what, at the pool, 
and uh, he's brilliant, especially him and Terry Bradshaw are a team together in this movie, and they're hilarious. And when you see the outtakes at the end, Terry Bradshaw cannot keep his face straight while uh, Mel Tillis is trying to get his dialogue out. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we haven't even touched on uh, Farrah Fawcett, but poor Farrah Fawcett was given so little of this movie <laughs> other than show up in no bra in a top and turn like the heating down to freezing. Uh, she, she was just the major eye candy. She was the Burt girl. Mm. And she has a, a couple of shy moments in there, but she's not really given anything. She's just meant to be the, I guess, the stereotypical dumb blonde in movies. But she did. She played it really well. I'll give her that. All right. Okay. I, I cannot mention the Cannonball Run without the one comment in this movie that <laughs> is a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Go on then. So you have Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Hey, they're brilliant. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, they're brilliant. They are absolutely brilliant in this movie. They're so sleazy. And they've got the natural um, rivalry with Burt Reynolds and Dan Delwees. And they have a bit where they're, you know, they're, they're just giving this exchange. You can tell a lot of this movie is just ad-libbed. They ad-lib a, a lot of the humour and everything. Uh, but the moment that... <sighs> Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin are disguised as priests in a red Ferrari. Right? That, that's, that's one of the jokes in itself. It's the point... It's the point where Burt Reynolds calls Sammy Davis Jr. the chocolate monk. Oh, shit. <laughs> and <laughs> to his face, right? And it's a it's a banter back and forth, right? That is pretty funny. You could tell Sammy Davis Jr. was in on it. But yeah, at the same but... time, you're like, oh, that's, yeah, a bit, shit. that's a bit southern humor, I guess. Uh, but in saying all that, I freaking love the Cannonball Run. I do. Because it's just a different type of time for cinema. right? They didn't need a plot. It's a movie about a race. There is no plot. It's just segments. It's like a Roadrunner cartoon. Right? That's the best way to explain it. And they're just fun. They they are fun films, and it looks like everyone was having the time of their life. You see the outtakes; everyone is dying laughing. It looks like it was an experience them all being together and just having this fun. And uh, I really kind of miss that about movies. I'd love to see the Cannonball Run done again today. Okay, and, and just get a huge like Hollywood diverse cast, just sending themselves up and having fun. You know, a lot of people said, well. We're talking movie 43? No, we're not. That's just terrible. <laughs> but something like the Cannibal Run would just be fun. Yeah, there's not going to be anyone with testicles on his chin or whatever it was. Or yeah, ball chin Yeah, Whatever. Okay, so we've got one more. Okay, uno más. The, the Biggie. Uh, well, it was The Biggie for 1998, I guess. Armageddon was released. Armageddon out of here! Yes, we've covered Deep Impact. Yep. The only other movie to cover Deep Impact was Armageddon <laughs> because uh, it, it went viciously back and forth between these movies in the day. This was the the year when Michael Bay said, are you really going to match the star power of Taylor Leone against Bruce Willis? And it's like, dude, you just directed her in Bad Boys. <laughs> That's 
freaking harsh. Yeah, but in Deep Impact's defense, it did give uh, Porn Parodies a really, really good starting point to name their film. Oh, yes. It did. <laughs> it's very true. Yeah, <laughs> Armageddon. I love Armageddon. I went to see it at the cinema. Um, I watched it about two months ago. I think so. Um, that cinemas? Jesus Christ. That, no, that cinema needs to catch up. No, it's on Disney+. Plus. Oh, yeah. yeah so <laughs> at least you don't have to flip the disc on this one. No, no. I, I got it uh, on DVD because it wasn't available on VHS as well. And yeah, at the beginning, it was in that first raft of films where you had to turn the disc over halfway through. At the uh, most inopportune time as well, too. Yeah. For the film right in the middle of the action. Um, and then when it got re-released later, it was a director's cut, which had about another, I don't know, two, three minutes in there. Nothing major. Um, but I was ecstatic to see that I could now sit down and watch the whole thing from start to finish. It was like with um, Air Force One. I could do the same thing with that as well. It was brilliant. I was in heaven. I mean, the, yeah, the, the film is what it is. You know, I'm not going to deny that it isn't just a great, big, huge, dumb action movie. With some massive plot holes, <laughs> you know, like it yes. would genuinely be easier to train an astronaut to drill than a driller to go into space. Yes, well, apparently NASA actually shows this movie to new managers, and the trick is they have to spot as many errors as possible. And apparently, the record is 168 errors. Is that all? In logic, mm-hmm. that have been uncovered. Yeah, Michael Bay. All right, Bayhem. This is the man who gave us. Five Transformers movies. Mm-hmm. He's in this. He is in this. He is yes. in this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you noticed him in the yeah. scene with um, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, it's the one where they say, they're going to, we're going to Hubble, and he kind of moves his chair across a bit and hits a button off one screen. It's either him or Michael Bolton. I don't know. <laughs> or, or Curtis Stagg. could be him. They all look alike. Sorry, Michael. Um, so, yes, this is Bruce when he had hair still. Yeah, he's he's it's it's mad. He has patches of hair, you know, but he still has it. This was uh, Bruce Willis, famously. Uh, he signed on to do this because um, I believe he was trying to get a project off the ground that just was not gaining any steam. Obviously, franchise pitches weren't around at the time, uh, and Disney consolidated the debt he had on that movie by doing a free picture deal. Armageddon was the first one. It was the I kid. The, no, the kid uh, was much later, actually. Uh, it was actually The Sixth Seth and then Unbreakable. And right. he signed on, obviously, to do another one with the kid. And he might have done one or two more. I can't even remember. Wow. In that, he looked out after this deal then, didn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, Bruce was still on fire at this time. Um, and Michael Bay, you know, was on fire at this time. This was just before he did Pearl Harbor, which is amazing because Michael Bay actually considers Armageddon his worst movie. <clears throat> Still, to this day. Yeah. And it's like, I'm pretty sure you've got some others in there that would rank a lot lower yeah. than this. We've sat through those Transformers sequels, Michael. Trust me, this isn't your worst film. Yeah, yeah. And um, Steve Buscemi and Billy Bomb Thornton have both gone on record saying they both did it for the money. Uh, Steve Buscemi actually signed on because his character was more of a heroic type and he wanted to get out of his Weasley-type roles that he was in all the time. Apparently they rewrote it <laughs> as soon as he signed on to become Rockhound, the kind of Weasley sleazebag geologist. Mm. Um, yeah, he, he said he did it because you know he wanted a new house. And Billy Fair Bob kind of did it for the same reasons as well. 
But Armageddon paid off. I mean, it was the highest grossing movie for Walt Disney. Highest grossing live action movie uh, for Walt Disney at the time of its release. It's been surpassed since, obviously, by well, pretty much everything they've done since. Yeah. But at the time, this was, you know, this was it. And speaking, we mentioned earlier about the the Eddie Murphy multiverse. I believe that Armageddon and The Rock exist in the same universe. Yeah, because they share the same president, don't they? The same president. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was like, he's always in kind of like half light. Exactly. Yeah. So, is there a Bayverse? I don't know. That'd be interesting as well. I know. Well, it wouldn't be because I'm sick of hearing about multiverses and all this no, shit now, and, like and they're to... just trying to blend all it. What's What's so wrong with just having standalone? stories nowadays it's like this one that they're trying to do with oh we're going to combine mask with visionaries and this that and the other or we want to combine gi joe and transformers or fast and furious and jurassic park it's like off it's the saturday morning universe well they don't all work out because the 21 jump street men in black thing never happened oh thank god yeah to be honest um the edits uh michael bay is obviously Michael Bay, basically, he just makes vast trailers. Let's, let's be honest. He does them brilliantly, better than anyone we know, but his movies are just basically trailers. And the cuts in this movie are 1.5 seconds, on average. Yeah. So you've got a new shot every 1.5 seconds. And not only was annihilating Deep Impact the flavour of the week, he also annihilates Godzilla <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> yeah. By a Godzilla toy stand that gets annihilated by a giant asteroid in possibly one of the greatest New York destruction scenes in a big budget movie. Oh yeah. Still to this day. Yeah, I mean it wasn't the wasn't the first one to do that round right about that time. Um I believe so. Yeah, because you no, had because Deep Impact did it. But you, you also had um sorry, I'm I'm talking about the uh the throwing some shade at your competition thing. Uh, ah. Because just I think it was just the year before when the X Files movie came out, you had Mulder pissing oh. on the Independence Day poster. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's and that was the same studio, so that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. I know. <laughs> I was like, why are you why are you shitting on your own product? What's going on? I know. I know. This was. Um... Among the first movies released on DVD in its flipper mm-hmm. form, as noticed. But did you know it was also the last movie released on Laserdisc? Oh, no, I didn't. Good ah. little uh, good little factoid. Bet you had to flip that bastard as well. Yeah. Um, this is how I like my Bruce Willis. He still had enough energy to kind of he deliver the goods on this movie. And I think Ben Affleck was all right in this. I mean, yeah. I like Ben Affleck whenever he's not doing a voiceover in the movie. <laughs> because he does terrible voiceovers. Have you speaking of voiceovers? Have you actually listened to the commentary track of this? Yes, <laughs> it's brilliant. He's he's spending a lot of the time watching the film, but he spends so much of the time making fun of the film, particularly Billy Bob Thornton, and he's constantly doing his voice from Sling Blade. Yep. And, and, yeah. uh, and I think there was one point that he said uh, he was questioning everything that was happening in the movie to Michael. Uh, Michael Bay and Michael Bay. Just told him to shut up. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. You're not making a film steeped in fact. This is just, it's a ride. Michael Bay makes a ride. 
of his movies. It's a ride. Speaking of it, I would love to, this to be a ride. There actually is a ride, I believe. Or there was one. Wow. Um, I can't remember. I'm sure I've read that there was an Armageddon kind of virtual ride. I'll have to do some more research into that. Um, the bad things about Armageddon, where do you start? There well, are many. There could be the Aerosmith song, which is annoying, mm-hmm. and obviously just done because his daughter was in the movie. Speaking of his daughter being in the movie, the love story is cringeworthy. Yep. Poor Liv. It's like, jeez, you could have done anything. I think you did do... was a movie called Stealing Beauty that she was in or something like that around the time. Yeah, that's actually one of Amanda's favourite films. Oh, is she, it? She really likes that movie. Well, she was better in that. And, and this, it was... Ugh, she's like the really only woman in the movie, apart from Will Patton's wife, who played April O'Neil in the Turtles movie. I did not realise that for years until I watched it. Literally, up until about two months ago when I was watching it, and I suddenly thought... She rem- she looks familiar, and then I went on to IMDb, and yeah, April O'Neil. Yeah. So the great way to utilize Will Patton. Will Patton just seemed to be in every Simpson Bruckheimer movie around that time. Yeah. They must have really liked him, and he's he's a great actor. Uh, still to this day, and he's still delivering roles to this day. Um, he also had the debut of Michael Clark Duncan, catapulted onto the world as Bear. Uh, Luke Wilson was just starting to wow. come out of his wes. <laughs> wow. Wow. And hundreds of little cameos of yeah. people that you just know, including a good friend of mine, Shawnee Smith, uh, who I met on Anger Management. She plays the girl in the bar that Rockhound the, is trying uh, to chat up. Yeah. yeah. Um, Peter Stormare, let's, let's not forget him, steals the show. Of course. Oh, yeah. We need a Russian. Get Peter Stormare. Yeah. Get, get that guy. Where's he from? Uh, he's from Norway. I don't care. He's Russian to me. Whatever. And then William Fichter. Yes. Um, it's it's got an amazing cast as oh, yeah. you know, some proper reliable workhorses in it. And I'm I'm going to go on the line. Armageddon is just it's unapologetically fun. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's it's one of those movies you will buy for your DVD collection, even though it is not. Well, it's it's not even certified fresh, but you would want it to be because it's just you can switch it on and switch your brain off and have fun. I'm going to admit it. There is, there is, you know, there's, a, there's a little kind of little lump in the throat at the end. It's a little one. It, it's not, it's not like a huge swelling Adam's apple that you might get, say, like at the end of Philadelphia. But no, it's, it's a little one. Uh, but the fact that this isn't certified fresh, and that piece of garbage from the other week is, it just goes to prove more than anything else that the Rotten Tomatoes rating system is flawed. Well, it is because it's critics. Yeah. I watch a movie to be entertained. And I find entertainment through every different type of movie. Oh, one second. Yeah. Hi, Ethan. Oh, give me a kiss. Mm, I love you too. Oh, love you, mate. You want to sleep, yeah? Okay. We're going to leave that in the show so you can hear it. Why? <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Go on, night night, mate. Love you. Oh, you're not settling yet? Yeah. Okay. All right, night-night. <laughs> oh, bless, bless just him. Just tap me on the shoulder gently just to say, just wanted to say goodnight. <laughs> oh, bless his little console. Leave that in. That's so cute. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Armageddon, 1998. And it's it's going to be eternally enjoyable, that movie, yeah. no matter what. Yeah, it is. It is. Right, so we we have no guest. 
do we? No. Which is, uh, I can hear Ethan pissing. <laughs> yeah. I can hear him pissing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> this is all staying in, by the way. I'm going to play this one for him when he's like 20. Uh, anyway. Okay. Yes. Okay. For those of you um, who are going to miss Nominate 5 this week, uh, tough. Yeah. We'll, we, we'll have one next week. We've not got rid of it. We, it's just temporarily taking a break at the moment. You know? Yes. Uh, and besides, we know that the reason why you're all here is for what's in the box. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Yeah, what is in the box? Yeah. Well, we know we're not going to be cruel and we're not going to give you before midnight. We're going to leave you for a while before that one is catapulted on you. Oh, thank God for that. I'm in no mood to... Yeah. So... Give me something have... with sex scenes and car chases. Come on. Sex scenes and car chases. Sex scenes okay, and car chases. Come on. Oh, this might just hit the spot. Thing is, I know you haven't seen it because we have mentioned this in the past. Okay. And when I say it hits the spot, uh, you've got the Disney animated movie 101 Dalmatians. What, the cartoon? Yes. Oh, I've seen that. You said you hadn't seen it. I've seen that. You've when definitely you... seen it. You're yeah. not lying. Is that for car chasing? Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil, if she doesn't okay. care. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen okay. the live action one as well, with Glenn Close. Uh, I thought you hadn't seen the animated No, I think one. you okay. might be getting uh, confused with Cruella. Oh, yeah. Well, I've not seen much. that. No. Okay. Choice number two. Oh, funnily enough, we've mentioned this in the past as well as part of anniversaries, and you said you hadn't seen it. Uh, so you are definitely not seen this. Born on the 4th of July. No, but I have seen Born on the 5th of July. Born even hardier. <laughs> yes, Born on the 4th of July. Uh, no, I haven't. No, Oliver I haven't. Stone's biopic of uh, Ron Kovic, played by Tom Cruise. This was Tom Cruise stepping out of Hollywood blockbusters to do real stuff of substance. Yeah. And it's got an amazing cast in it. Amazing cast. It's a great movie as well. Okay. All right. So we've got uh, we've got one of the Hollywood's well-known Nut jobs directing another Hollywood well-known nut job. Okay, right. This is going to be great. Also, Willem Dafoe's in it, so you've got the person who plays the greatest Hollywood nut jobs. It <laughs> <laughs> really does. If you've seen that behind-the-scenes footage of him in, as in Spider-Man in his Green Goblin costume, just suddenly just dancing and like pulling loads of Power Rangers poses. Well, one thing I was actually going to bring up Spider-Man because pretty much as soon as Endgame came around, I've lost all interest in the MCU. Could don't care, don't care, don't care. But I did go and see um, No Way Home simply because I wanted to see what they were doing with all the older Spider-Man characters. And I, with it. I loved Willem Dafoe and like that switching that he was constantly doing between the two of them. And he was proper unhinged. So no, I've got a lot of love for Dafoe. Dafoe. And you and you just wanted to see what Alfred Molina looked like when he was a young you. <laughs> what can I say? He's a good-looking man. He is, and a great actor, just like yourself. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, that is the show this week. Uh, mm -hmm. We will be back next week with a proper, uh, probably a longer episode, I'd say, yeah. because we've got Jonas Barnes coming on to tell us 
the movies of the month, the movies that have been released theatrically and uh, on streaming, and he keeps up to date with a lot of the movies that we obviously don't get to see. Oh, he's so, going to uh, have fun with me, isn't he? Yeah, he will. So you'll have fun with me because I haven't seen a lot of the stuff either, but he, he's got such a fantastic and funny way of uh, telling you about these movies, and I'm really looking forward to it. Okay. So, a bit of adventure for next week. Right. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in for our kind of mini-sode. We're glad that you like coming in, just hearing us talk about movies, hearing about the facts, hearing about what Steve thinks about cinema that is apparently loved by people on Rotten Tomatoes. And I will say, because I know Bill, I know you're listening, and you're having a go, <laughs> a go at me saying, you know, oh, the, the, this movie is terrible, or these movies that you choose are really questionable. I'm not choosing them. The critics on Rotten Tomatoes are the whole point of uh, what's in the box is to disagree with movies that are critically loved. Oh boy, have I disagreed. Oh yeah. dear. You know, it's, it's proving cinema is not necessarily for the everyman, you know, but there's been surprising movies that he has loved, like Once, you know? Yep. Probably you absolutely love that movie. That Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, you know, uh, even go back as far as um, Dog Day Afternoon. I thought that was fantastic. Dog Day Afternoon, yeah. uh, Flags of Our Fathers. Yeah, um, I guess we go all the way back for movies like Master and Commander. The, the, yeah. You know, it's a wide variety of movies, and we haven't even really touched on foreign films yet. We've not had any come out of the box. Yes, but it's going to happen. It will and do for so... Steve. He's you feel even more educated to film since we've been doing it. Yeah. In good ways and bad ways. <laughs> yeah. I've been drinking that... a lot more. I don't know if the two are linked, but... Uh... Yeah. But come on. Yeah. Only you could have this experience with Death Race 2000 from What's in the Box. Oh, yeah. That was another one that I really liked. Death Race 2000. I thought it was great. At the end of the day, I don't certify them fresh. I just document that they are certified fresh. Oh. And then we pull them out. It'd be no fun if they were all rotten movies. Although I do think we should do one season with films. Well, we, we kind of do that from though. the bottom end of the. I know. I I reckon we should do like one season where it's like all the worst ones. Find the lowest rated movies on Rotten Tomatoes and watch those. Yes. But I can guarantee you've seen them. <laughs> I might not have done Annihilation and and all stuff like that and Ballistic X versus Sever. Well, okay then. Let's let's put it to the listeners then. If you think that we should carry on the way that we are, or do you think we should just for one season, just for one season alone, just take like a slight diversion and then try and see if the scrapings in the bottom of the barrel actually taste of concrete. Yes. Yeah. Well, fine. We'll put that out there. But in the meantime, we will see you next week. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> And now I had a Chinese delivered 45 minutes ago that I'm now going to go and eat off. Well, you know what? I had a Chinese delivered just before. Uh, and uh, I have the fortune cookie right here. It didn't get open. And I might even put this into the show. So here we go. The fortune is... It has a word which is gift. And the fortune is the time is right to make new friends. Oh, wow. Mm. They really don't like these what's in the box. <laughs> no.